This morning, we're going to look at the birth announcement of Jesus in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. Birth announcements are a big deal today. People love to announce their pregnancies, don't they? First, they announce that they are pregnant. Then they announce whether the kid will be blue or pink, right, boy or girl. Uh, when the baby's born, they announce how many ounces the child is, what the child measured. I found that however big your child is, there's always someone who has had a bigger kid. <laughs> Our last two children were over 10 pounds at birth. And there is nothing like a 10-pound baby that brings out those people who want to point out that they've had an 11-pound baby. There's always someone, right? Well, we're going to look at the ultimate birth announcement today. And let's be honest, what we're looking at is probably quite familiar to most of you. Because many of us have heard this story a hundred times over. We've seen the play, we've sung the songs, we've heard it preached. But what I want you to do today is to put yourself in the position of a young teenager who hears the incredible news that she is about to give birth to God. In Luke's gospel, Luke tells us this part of the story from Mary's perspective. So the goal here is to read this and allow the text of scripture to speak to us. Let's begin our reading in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. This story, it says, takes place in the sixth month. Now you might think the sixth month, that's June. What does June have to do with Christmas? But this is where it's important to remember the context around what we're reading. Last week, Brandt led us in a study of the first half of Luke, chapter 1, and there we saw the angel Gabriel tell Mary's relative Elizabeth that she would have a son. And this story takes place six months after Elizabeth's conception. So six months after her pregnancy. That same angel Gabriel sent to Mary, who was engaged to Joseph. Now, back then, uh, women would typically marry at a much younger age than they do today. But today, according to one statistic I read from the U.S. Census Bureau, the average age of a woman getting married today is almost 28 years old. Now, if you can look at it, they're going to have a chart on the screen, I think. But um, if, you, if you notice here, there's a trend, isn't there? In 1960, the average age was 20. So obviously something is changing. They're, they're estimating that children born in the year 2023 won't get married until they're collecting Social Security. They'll still be living in their parents' house. I mean, that's, that's how this trend is going. But back in Mary's time, it wasn't unusual for a teenager to get engaged or betrothed, ages 12 or 13 sometimes, sometimes as late as 15. So it's highly, highly likely that Mary wasn't just a young girl. She was a young teenage girl. An engagement back then was much more serious than an engagement today. To be engaged then meant that you were legally committing to that marriage. An engagement would usually last about a year. If you wanted to break it off, you would have to get an official divorce. So Mary is engaged to Joseph. Sometimes your Bibles might translate it betrothed. We have no idea how old Joseph was, no way of knowing, but we do have one little piece of information the text gives us about him. Verse 27 says, Joseph is of the house of David. David was the first king uh, of Israel from the tribe of Judah. All other legitimate kings after him came from his lineage. 
So Joseph can trace his family tree all the way back to King David. Joseph has royal blood flowing in his veins. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's from David's line. And that is really important because there's this prophecy in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah that says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Notice those words. A child will be born. He will be called Mighty God. He will reign on David's throne. And from passages like this, the Jewish people expected their anointed one, their Messiah, to be from the line of David from the tribe of Judah. So when Gabriel, this angel, comes, and this angel is apparently known for making pregnancy announcements because he's done it with Elizabeth. Now he does it with Mary. He shows up at Mary's doorstep, and Luke, the author, tells us that Mary is engaged to a man from the line of King David, and suddenly we are anticipating something great. The next verse records what Gabriel said to Mary and her reaction, verses 28 and 29. It says, and coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Now, this is quite the greeting. If an angel showed up at your house, you'd probably listen very carefully to what he had to say. You'd pour over every word. You'd analyze it, think about what it meant, why he said it. So let's do that. Gabriel starts with the word greetings. Now today that sounds a little stiff and formal, doesn't it? You came in today, I'm, I'm going to guess that our greeters didn't, you know, greetings, churchlings, like they probably didn't start like that as you walked into the, the service today. But back then, that was a normal form of address. In fact, the Greek word for greetings is related to the Greek word for grace. Greetings is kairo, grace is charis. They come from the same root. In fact, so does the next phrase. Greetings, O favored one. That's one word in the Greek language, karitao, the same root word as the word grace. Grace to you, O graceful one. Might have sounded something like that to the original hearers. Now, what is grace? Grace is undeserved favor, unearned favor and blessing, something that you are getting that you don't deserve. You have not earned it. It's like when your kid has been a brat all year round, and yet you get them something nice on Christmas anyway. They didn't earn it. They don't deserve it. But you show them grace, something that they have not worked for, because that's what grace is. It is undeserved favor. And Gabriel, this angel, comes and he greets Mary with two words that share the root of grace. And he says, the Lord is with you. And that sounds comforting, doesn't it? But strangely enough, Mary's reaction doesn't display comfort. In verse 29, again, she says, it says, she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And that caught my attention as I was thinking about this this week because she wasn't confused about the angel showing up. The text says that's not what confused her. She's confused about what the angel said. Now, some people like to put Mary on this big pedestal. 
She's this holy woman, a saint, a perfect person in all ways, never sinned. That's why God chose her to carry this baby, Jesus. But Mary's reaction and the angel's words tell us otherwise. There is nothing in the angel's words that would indicate she was especially holy or especially sinless or anything like that. In fact, quite the opposite. Gabriel's words indicate that whatever blessings Mary had, she had from God solely as a work of God's undeserved favor in her life. Grace. Undeserved favor. Meaning she didn't earn it. The Lord was with her, but that was not of her own doing. That's why Mary might have been so confused and troubled at these words. How can this be? I mean, a teenage girl, God showing grace to a teenage girl? But God often chooses the weak and the lowly in the eyes of the world to accomplish great things for him, doesn't he? That gives him more glory. That ensures that he gets the credit for what he does rather than us getting the credit for what he does. So Mary's a little perplexed here, and the angel reiterates his greeting in verse 30, and he says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The angel tells her, don't be afraid. You know, angels in scripture can be terrifying. When we think of angels, we typically think of like a woman in a white robe with big fluffy wings, or maybe those cute little cherub babies with their butts sticking out, right? And that's typically what we think about when we think about angels, but angels in scripture re reflect the awesome glory and power of God. They cause the strongest of men to fall to their knees and cower and quake in their presence. So Gabriel says, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And once more, that word favor comes from the same root word as the word grace. And again, we might be th tempted to think that Mary earned this in some way, that, that perhaps because of her holiness or some internal righteous quality of hers, that God chose her to be the carrier of the Messiah. But the Bible does not emphasize that here. Gabriel uses a phrase that was well known in the Old Testament. To find favor with God does not mean that you are necessarily holier than that. It means that God has decided to act on behalf of that person. The stress is not on human merit or a person's righteousness that has earned that grace. If so, it wouldn't be grace, would it? Because grace is unearned favor. The stress in that phrase to find favor with God is on God's choice and God's decision. If we come away from this passage thinking about Mary and how good and how holy she is, then we have missed the entire point. It's not that Mary was rotten. It's not that she was ungodly, but this is not a story about Mary. It's a story about Jesus and about God the Father and the Holy Spirit working through them. In fact, look at what else Gabriel says. The next three verses highlight five key things about Christ. Verses 31 to 33. Gabriel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. And will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. How about that for a birth announcement? Mary is told she will conceive and bear a son. This is her gender reveal. I mean, maybe Gabriel popped a big balloon and blue confetti fell out. Not sure exactly how it happened. But either way... He simply tells her it's a boy. His name will be Jesus. Jesus is actually a common Hebrew name. 
Israelites, the name Joshua. The name literally means Yahweh saves. Yahweh was God's personal covenantal name he revealed to the Israelites in the Old Testament. So by virtue of his name, Gabriel lets Mary know that her son will be the one through whom God saves. When you think Jesus, think Savior. That's who he is. And there are five key statements Gabriel makes about this Savior. First of all, verse 32, Jesus will be great. Notice how that's written. It's a very simple statement. We kind of toss that term around a lot these days, don't we? How was the new Marvel movie? Oh, it was great. Did you enjoy your meal? It was great. How were your frosted flakes this morning? They were great, right? <laughs> All of these imply a great something, a great movie, a great meal, a great breakfast cereal. But what I love about Gabriel's first statement in verse 32 is that it is unqualified. He will be great, period. Not he will be a great person, not he will be a great son, not he will be a great savior, all, although all of those things are true, just simply he will be great. He is the pinnacle of all that is good, unqualified greatness. He is the best there is. Parents, all you want is to have great kids. And some of you would probably even settle if you had fairly good kids or even just presentable kids. But, but Mary is told, your kid will be great. Now, the second thing that Gabriel tells Mary is that Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. This is an interesting birth announcement here. Mary, you're going to get pregnant. It's going to be a boy. He's going to be great. And also, he's not really your son. He's the son, not of Mary, not of Joseph. I mean, yes, he is the son of Mary, right? But he is ultimately the Son of the Most High. Most high is a name for God. It, it's the equivalent of the Hebrew phrase El Elyon, God most high. And the idea behind this expression is that God is the supreme being in all the universe. There is none greater. It's a universal claim to supremacy. God most high. Oftentimes back then, kings would set their palaces in the highest places of the city. That way everyone, wherever they were, could look up and they could see who was most high in that city. God is the highest of all the high. He rules over the heavens and the earth and everything in between. Jesus is his son. And in ancient thought, the son is a reflection of the father. The son possesses the qualities of the father. The son was the image of his father made in his likeness. Jesus is the son of the most high, which means he himself is the most high. Now, the third thing that Gabriel says is that Jesus will be given the Davidic throne. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Remember, though, Jesus's earthly father was Joseph, his adoptive father. But Gabriel is using the word father here in the sense of ancestor. Jesus is from the line of Judah. He's got royal blood flowing through his veins. The Davidic throne is rightly his. And Gabriel is saying Jesus is that long-awaited Messiah. He is the messianic king, the ruler prophesied about in the Old Testament in books like Isaiah and Samuel and Psalms and the other prophets. 
Not only will Jesus be given the throne, but Gabriel says in verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. This is the fourth statement Gabriel makes about Jesus. Jesus will reign over Israel forever. House of Jacob was another way of referring to Israel. So not only will he have the throne, he's going to reign on the throne forever and ever. He will sit on David's throne as a righteous and just ruler and rule as king forevermore. And just to make sure that we get the point, Gabriel says it in a different way. This is the fifth thing he says, that Jesus will have an everlasting kingdom. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. King David's reign lasted about 40 years. King Solomon's reign, another 40 years. You can read books in the Bible like Kings or like Chronicles and see how one king came after the other. Some of them reigned for a few years, some just for a few months, and and many for many decades. But there is one common denominator of all of them. They are all dead now. Their reign did not last forever. But that's the difference with Jesus. He is a Davidic ruler. He'll sit on David's throne. He'll reign forever. His kingdom will be everlasting. Folks, we really can't even comprehend that, can we? We live in America, so if you don't like our ruler, wait four to eight years and you'll have another one. Some countries, they appoint their rulers for life. The Queen of England was on the throne for 70 years before her death. The longest reign of any British monarch ever. But guess what? No disrespect to the queen, but she's dead. But not Jesus. He died, but even death didn't stop him. He resurrected three days later. His reign, it says, will be everlasting. There will be no end to it. Seventy years will be like a drop of water in the ocean compared to Jesus' reign. Now, you thought your pregnancy announcement was special. This one is great. Now, I'm sure that this was a lot for Mary to process. She's told that her baby would be the savior of the world, God most high, the Messiah king who was prophesied about long ago, all of that, and she isn't even married yet. So naturally, she's a little bit confused, as her question in verse 34 shows. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? Now, we should stop and think about this for a second or two. It's kind of a a strange question when you think about it. She's engaged to be married. The angel shows up and says, you're going to have a baby boy. And she asks, how can this happen? Did did Mary miss her ninth grade health class? I mean, what, what is going on here? Mary's not like Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was beyond the years of childbearing. She's not like Elizabeth who we read about last week, who's beyond the years of childbearing. Remember when God told Abraham's wife, Sarah, she's going to have a baby? Sarah laughed and she said, no way. I mean, I'm too old. Sarah had a reason to doubt. Elizabeth had a reason to doubt. But Mary's got a wedding coming soon. She's about to be married. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage. I mean, that's usually how it works, right? So it kind of makes you wonder, why does she ask this question? And the angel doesn't rebuke her, which means it probably wasn't a bad question. She's not asking, can you do this? She's asking, how can you do this? She doesn't quite understand how this could take place. So Gabriel answers her in verse 35. It says, the angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who, has called barren, she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. So Gabriel tells Aunt Mary how this could happen. Jesus will not be born of a normal human sexual relationship. A virgin will give birth. The Holy Spirit will come upon her. Now, please understand, there's nothing sexual about that phrase. Some people get some weird ideas here. But the exact same phrase is used in Acts chapter 1-8 to describe the Holy Spirit coming upon all believers at the start of the church age. So it's just a phrase that describes the power of the Spirit of God at work in a person. The Holy Spirit will come upon Mary. Gabriel says, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, what does that mean? That phrase, that metaphor to overshadow is usually used either literally or metaphorically to describe the protection that God gives his people. God says to Mary, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's a, it's a tall task to carry the Messiah in your womb. I mean, ladies, think about how anxious you were to carry your own firstborn child. Imagine having the responsibility of raising God himself. But God promises this special protection upon Mary and her kid. And Gabriel also tells Mary that the holy child shall be called the son of God. Jesus is called holy. He's set apart. He's called the son of God. He is unique. He is like no other. All of this might have seemed so unbelievable to Mary. But the angel gives Mary some evidence. He says her relative Elizabeth is in her old age, and yet she's already conceived. In fact, she's six months in. Now, Luke doesn't tell us how old Elizabeth was. All we saw last week is that she was barren, and she was advanced in years. Barren means that when she was of the age of childbearing, she tried and tried and couldn't have a kid. Advanced in years means that she's hit menopause and gone beyond, and there is no way that she's supposed to have kids anymore. And yet, she's pregnant. Being related to Mary, Mary, of course, knew all this. She knew the struggles Elizabeth had, trying unsuccessfully for many years to have a child. She knew she was now too old to naturally conceive. But Gabriel says this at the start of this conversation. He says, listen, when this is over, go and visit your, your relative here. Talk to her, and you're going to see she's six months pregnant. And that will be confirmation enough that God can do a miracle with you since God could do a miracle with her. Nothing is impossible with God. That's similar to what God told Abraham and Sarah when he announced their pregnancy in their old age. Is anything too hard for the Lord, God said to them? The prophet Jeremiah once said it like this in Jeremiah 32. He said, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Nothing will be impossible with you. Nothing is too hard for the God who called creation into existence. And when we consider that little baby in the manger, that little child in Mary's womb, we realize how incredible it is that the same God who spoke creation into existence, the same God who made the heavens and the earth, that same God humbled himself to come as a baby because of his great love for you. Praise God. 
He was a baby, and yet he was God most high king upon his throne. And Mary recognizes this. Her reaction should be our reaction. Look at verse 38. Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now notice Mary doesn't puff herself up and say, behold, I am the natural choice for this. She doesn't say, of course God chose me. I mean, why wouldn't he? She doesn't look to the future and say, you know, one day my picture is going to be on the wall of every church in the world and people will worship me. No. Mary says, behold, I am a bond slave of the Lord. Servant of God is what she says. What a great response. I am, I am simply God's servant. I am your maid, God. I am no more than a household slave. I don't deserve this. I didn't earn this. And it is only by your grace. Whatever your word says, Lord, let it be done. Even if it's as crazy as you asking me, an unmarried teenage virgin, to carry God in my womb, I am your servant. Let your will be done. This should be our response to God. You see, God is God most high. There's nothing any of us can do to change that. Doesn't matter if we believe it or not. Doesn't matter if we choose to follow him or not. It doesn't change the fact that he is sovereign God, king, creator, lord of the universe. God is God. But here we find out God is also Mary's Lord. She is God's servant. God is her Lord, her master. She has submitted herself to his sovereign power. She personally vows to obey his word. And that is what the word of God is calling us to do as well today. Allow the Lord Jesus to rule your life. Allow the Lord Jesus to rule your life. You know, during the Christmas season, we, I mean, this, this is a beautifully decorated stage. Many people have noted that already. I, I concur, right? I agree. It's beautiful. Sometimes we can get lost in the Christmas of it all and forget as we reflect on this baby in the manger who this baby is. We reflect on the incarnation, God inhabiting human flesh. And, and when we think about that poor, humble child wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, we can forget that this is the same God who created the universe. It's the same God that we ought to submit our lives to. Because whether we realize it or not, Jesus is Lord. There is no changing that. The question is, is he your Lord? The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord. Some of you need to submit certain areas of your life to Jesus' lordship. Uh, in certain areas of your life, perhaps you've, you've already said, you know, Lord, I am your servant. Let it be your will according to your word. But in other areas, in other rooms of your house, you kind of keep those doors closed. And you, and you say, you know what, Lord, I'm not so sure that it would be better if I gave that up to you. Let me keep this area for myself. I'm sure that Mary's script for her life was very different than what God decided to do with her. Whatever it is that you're holding back from the Lord, it's worth it to submit to him. 
Perhaps you're the kind of person that is very committed to coming out on a Sunday morning. Maybe you even serve on Wednesdays, but you've got that relationship in your life that you know isn't quite right. You don't want to let go of it. Allow the Lord to be Lord over that area of your life. Maybe, maybe most things are quite balanced for you, but you've got that addiction that you're just too comfortable with to let go of right now. Allow the Lord, Jesus, to rule over all areas of your life. Maybe you've simply lived as if you are number one in your life. You are your own Lord. Allow the Lord Jesus to be Lord over your life. Now, some of you, I think, might need to submit yourself to Jesus totally. You came today because it's the Christmas season, and that's what we do at Christmas. We come to church. Confessing Jesus as Lord is much more than just sporadic church attendance. It's a commitment to serve him and his word with all your life. That's a high calling. But if you desire to save your life, first you must lose your life, Scripture says. And I would encourage you today to take a moment Confess your sin before the Lord. Ask the Lord to rule your life as Lord. Ask him to come in and change what is in you that you've been holding on to. And the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, will indeed do that. You will be saved from your sin. Take a moment to recognize that Jesus is Lord in your life. Whether it's confession your sin to, to him for the first time or whether it's something that you're holding on to that maybe you just need to let go of. Believe in your heart that God died for you, that he rose again, and ask him to be Lord. I'm going to give just a few seconds of silence here for you to take some time and reflect in your heart over those areas that perhaps you are Lord, that Christ needs to be Lord. And then I'll wrap it up with just a few words after that. Take a few seconds, speak to God now. I'd like to invite some of our elders to come up front here. I think there's a couple standing by. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a moment and pray for you. And if you feel so led, I'd encourage you to come up and just pray with one of our elders. They're going to be up here to talk to you, to pray with you, to um, encourage you in your life. This passage is all about showing us that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God most high. He is king over the universe. Many of us have been the Lord of our own lives for far too long. Take time to confess that before God today, to clear out those areas in your life that need to be cleared out, and to be like Mary, humbly submitting yourself, God, I am your servant. If you feel so led after I pray, come on up. These elders are here to pray with you, to encourage you, to challenge you. And I would encourage you to, to follow the Lord's leading in your heart this morning. Let me pray for you. 
Father, I pray that Jesus Christ would be our Lord this Christmas season. I pray that you would help us to humbly confess our sin before you, to repent of our sin, to get on our knees before you, Lord, and allow you to be Lord of our lives. I pray whatever area of our life that we are holding on to, whatever room of our house we won't open that door to you to come in and sweep out the dust, I ask that today we would unlock that door, open it up to you, and that you would take care of our hearts. Lord, for those that maybe don't know you as our Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they've confessed their sin before you and asked you to reign. Lord, I thank you so much for the gift of Jesus Christ, for the baby in the manger, and yet the God of the universe. Come here to die on our behalf. Let us not lose sight of you this Christmas season. We pray these things and praise you for being Lord in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here today.